0: Uh, I'm Pippin McGee, and I'm uh, flattered that Bridget's Place has asked me back once again to teach. Uh, I would hate to estimate the number of times I've spoken to or on behalf of Bridget's Place, but evidently not enough. I hope tonight you won't leave here saying, that's enough. (laughs) I want to talk tonight about the essence of what I know. And the essence of what I know is that most of the history of uh, human consciousness and its evolution is centered around the issue of authority. I suspect we could probably generalize if I was a political scientist or an anthropologist and say that maybe the history of human development is around the issue of authority. As both an analytical psychologist and as a theologian, I can say that church history and the history of the evolution of consciousness are both centered around the issue of authority. Consciousness seems to be something that is uh, late blooming for the human organism, or at least it seems to be uh, evolving very slowly. In rare moments of human hubris, we seem to think that we've evolved greatly in terms of our human consciousness until we look at uh, contrary evidence and realize that we're not very far evolved in terms of consciousness. I'm not talking just individually but corporately and that is that we seem to think with the great inflation in human hubris which is the great danger of consciousness that many times we think of ourselves as knowing much more than we do know or that we've evolved much farther in terms of our frontal lobe as a neurophysiologist and neuropsychologist would tell us when in fact we're still living primarily out of our reptilian and mammalian brain our evolutionary psychologists' friends would tell us that really most human adaptation and conformity, including theology and religion, are really about survival. That most everything that has evolved in terms of human philosophy, theology, and psychology are um, frameworks or modes through which we provide structure which ameliorates anxiety, which allows us to survive longer. I don't quite have that scientific limited view, but I agree with it. I think there's more going on than just that. But I happen to agree that much of what we do in terms of human development is still centered around survival, much more than it's centered around highly developed consciousness. If you remember from some biology class that the human brain is basically three brains and the stem is uh, the reptilian brain, the central part of the brain is the mammalian brain and the frontal cortex is the human brain. The smallest part of the brain is human, the rest is still animal. That's why I say that the triple A's of the human condition have to do with being amphibious, ambiguous and ambivalent. Uh, Amphibious nature is this sense, are we angels or are we animals? Are we special creatures who are endowed, endowed with uh, uh, particular gifts and blessings of the Creator, or are we just another animal form in the chain of evolution? Uh, That that question, of course, would be uh, never answered, but only responded to, and we see in our amphibious nature that many times we think of ourselves as angelic when in fact we're pompous dust. Uh, We think of ourselves as being humane when in fact we are inhuman, and only humans can be inhuman. We don't refer to animals as being in-animal. And so when we're acting as animals, we describe ourselves as inhuman. And so, this amphibious nature of being human adds to an ambiguity, which leads to an ambivalence. And where there are the triple A's of the human condition, we find the fourth A, which is the result of the first three, and it is 1 plus 2 plus 3 equals the fourth and most dominant A of all, which is anxiety. You can tell him a uh, Jung and I will find a way to put everything in the fours, the quaternity, and the balance of the opposites. It said what Freud did for sex, Jung did for the number four. <laughs> uh, knowing Jung's biography as I do, I don't think he would be pleased with his uh, classification. So, tonight's lecture is about the essence of what I know, and what I know is that authority is a huge issue for the human organism because of our amphibious, ambiguous, ambivalent nature, and because of that leading to such anxiety that the ego, on the moment it bears the birth canal, begins to ask the question, who's in charge here and what are the rules for making it? That's the question of the ego. Who is in charge here? and what are the rules for making it? It's a question about survival, is it not? It's not a question about prospering into some transcendent consciousness, it's about survival. And I suspect any of us, when pushed in the corner, that we are in the deepest throes of the fight-or-flight response, and many times, even during the day, when the corner is not so apparent, and the driver is not obvious, we are still nonetheless driven into our psychological corners by those inner authorities that continue to haunt us with the rules and regulations for making it. The question of authority then becomes for the ego, and the ego is that sort of center of consciousness that Freud identified as the I am, the way by which I know myself. Jung kept the term ego or ego for that part of consciousness that has three primary functions, one, to orient the psyche in time and space, two, to differentiate between and among things in order to make connections, and three, identity. Orientation, differentiation, and identity are the three primary issues of the ego. Now, if we take a Platonic poetic view that among all the souls in the universe, we're the most fortunate for we have been plucked out of eternity into history to have the human experience. And so the ego is the orienting organ that says to this psyche, we are now in time and space. We are no longer in eternity. We have entered into history. We have limited into the dimensions of time and space. And my job as ego is to orient this organism into time and space. We now have beginnings and ends. Now, And the second part of the function of the ego is this idea of differentiation, which is simply just to identify or to differentiate things by saying, I am me and you're not. The primary and the most early and primitive one being the ego helping the infant identify itself in difference to the mother. So that differentiation that goes on between the infant and the mother is the primary differentiation, but also we find that as the ego develops, it's able to tell the differences between and among things and to do the opposite function which is to make connections. And making connections is an important part of ego structure and consciousness. It's what is known as the aha. Uh, I suspect most of human consciousness uh, is written around the issue of authority, but we have a vowel and a consonant that somehow parallel uh, the idea of the aha that comes with making a connection, the awe or the ah that comes from the connection having been made, and the joy of that which is ha-ha. So with an A and an H, with a vowel and a consonant, uh, we can make the entire human exclamation of consciousness. The third which gives us most difficulty is this idea of identity. Who am I and who are you? Who are we? Who is my neighbor? Where are we going? Those sort of basic psychological, philosophical, and or theological questions that are asked about why we're here. The identifying not only who you are, but the meaning of things, the purpose of things, and the idea of who belongs to whom, and do I belong here with you? Now, the ego prospers or grows through stimulation, gratification, and a sense of approval. And so it's this approval that sets us up for the problem of authority, and the whole idea that in order for the ego to prosper, it has to be stimulated. We know this intuitively, we know this instinctually, that if an infant is not stimulated, the infant will not prosper. And so we by our nature stimulate the infant by speaking to, by tactile affirmation, holding, stroking, containing. Uh, the idea of speaking to and, of, and, and stimulating the ego, the ego of the infant, uh, comes pretty naturally for us. We find ourselves uh, attempting uh, to stimulate uh, this infant, and if the infant is not stimulated, it will not prosper. The second thing that the ego prospers under is this idea of gratification. That simply means getting her needs met. Uh, when she's cold, she's warm. When she's wet, she's dried. When she's hungry, she's fed. Gratification. Now, interestingly enough, you might guess that along with that gratification comes a sense of approval. And approval is the third thing that prof- prospers the ego. And this approval, along with anxiety, creates a problem of authority. Have you ever seen so many A's in your life? If you want to add one that is my favorite to go with ambiguous and ambivalent and amphibious and anxiety and authority, you might add alliteration. (laughs) Have you ever had so much linguistic fun in one place at one time? So the idea then is that the ego, in order to prosper, must have approval, stimulation, gratification, and approval. And this approval comes in the form of the self-object, the object of the uh, infant, which is the mother or the mother figure, the maternal uh, support system, that the maternal support system says essentially to the ego, this is a safe place, you're cared for, and you're wanted. We approve of you. Now, so therefore, the ego, in our earliest development, develops around the issue of approval, and that is, I approve of you, and that's the issue of authority because it's the authorities granting the approval. and The authorities are parents, surrogate parents, parental figures, parental organizations, mother, grandmother, godmother, aunt, neighbor, school, church, and government. Those set up maternal figures. Now, the one I left out that may be most important for me and uh, maybe for you too, and particularly the latter part of this lecture, is another significant mother figure for the infant ego is the mother church. Very interesting how maternal... Uh, presence is so important to the early development of the infant and the infant's ego. Now you remember that the ego develops, it is not born fully developed in any sense of the word, nor is the infant, and along in some chronological parallel, the ego develops along with the infant, although it is not a simultaneous development As a matter of fact, developmental psychology would show us that certain individuals, depending on their environment, their authorities, their surrogate parental figures, will develop at different levels uh, depending on their environment. So development is not a guarantee. It has to do much more with this mystery between the genetic predisposition, nature, versus the kind of development or nurture that the infant receives. So we see that in developmental psychology that nurture and nature are both important and some mysterious quantity that we cannot quite quantify. That is, asking how much does heredity and environment affect the development? The answer is, a lot and both, and how much, I don't know. Uh, Much of uh, research would be around issues like that. Now, for the first seven years, therefore, of the life of the child, the authorities are parents or parental figures, asking the question, who's in charge here, and what are the rules for making it? How do I get the necessary approval? Now what happens early on, and maybe the earliest affective experience of the child, is anxiety. Now think about this for a minute we have a parallel development going on simultaneously and that is that a fetus goes in a mysterious moment through a birth canal and leaves a garden paradise of a symbiotic world where there is no consciousness therefore no anxiety. All the needs are met. A shock absorber existence. And so within in a mysterious instant Fetus becomes infant, consciousness begins, and there is immediate anxiety. And the anxiety is about survival. And anxiety is a continuing experience of the human organism throughout our existence, even up until our grave. My dear friend, mentor, and analyst, a priest and Jungian analyst named Ernie Bell, died of lung cancer uh, four years ago. I talked to him by telephone the week he died, and I said, Ernie, what are your thoughts about your death? He said, well, my ego is scared to death, and my self, the self, is mildly curious. Even up until the end, the ego is the part of us that's always anxious. The self, which we'll talk about subsequently tonight, the core, the essence, the true being, the one we're created to be, the center of life, the authentic self, is mildly curious because the authentic self sees this as a limited experience, time and space, and is looking for authenticity of the experience rather than survival through adaptation through the approval of the authority. There it is in a moment. The thesis of the lecture. For those of you who it, missed it, I will messed it. I will repeat it. The self is interested in the authenticity of the experience. The ego is interested in the approval of the authority and survival. And the anxiety about the approval and survival is the issue of structure. Now, we'll go back now and say that in the simultaneous development of this infant that's becoming a child, that the authority or structure, the rules for development of the ego and its survival, are the parental figures. And childhood runs roughly seven years. Those of you who've heard me do developmental psychology before, I realize how thrilling it is to realize that seven is an increment of development for the human organism. It seems to be a period of completion. Uh, symbolic life is replete with seven. A numerology takes its own narcissistic delight in the realization that seven appears mythologically, symbolically, psychologically as a period of development. It took seven days for the world to be created. In early Hebrew theology, the requirement was for every seven days a rest as the Lord rested and every seventh year a rest the sabbatical. And we know in development of um, children that seven years runs about uh, the end of childhood. Pre-adolescent begins in that period of latency uh, between seven and fourteen. So the first seven years of our lives, the parental authorities pretty much set for us what the rules are for making it. Those become definitive, not determinative, but definitive the rest of our lives. What we learn, particularly in, let's say, the first five years, it's said by those who do such things as research these kinds of issues, say that over half of what we ever learn is learned in the first five years of our lives. Think about that. So that what we learn about the rules for making it, survival, getting the approval of the authorities, parental figures, mother and father, what we learn, it becomes definitive, not determinative. Now, I've bet my professional life on the fact that it's not determinative because we can change, we can relearn, we can go back from those early definitions that have been so definitive in our attitudes, we can change those. Uh, We think as as well as the neurobiologists believe that there's a literal rewiring that goes on in the brain. And what psychoanalysis or psychotherapy is about, is about changing our minds. Rethinking some of those earliest attitudes that were developed when we had the rules for making or the definitions for what is appropriate behavior or attitude in order to get the approval of the authority. And so by the time we're five, we're pretty well wired in as to what's right, and what's wrong, and what kind of person we are, or how the world feels about us, and how we feel about the world. Uh, Somebody as intellectually astute, as Einstein said, the only fundamental question is, is the universe. And this is what we want to know as a child, do I belong? Is there a place for me? That's where the approval comes in that we so desperately need. And if I'm told early through being ignored or abused or abandoned that I am of no worth, that's a lifelong issue as to my own identity or my own attitude about myself. That definition gets wired in fairly early. It's not determinative, but it is definitive. And so, for seven years, the authorities are parents or parental figures, and somewhere between seven and fourteen, the authority shifts from parents to peers. So the peer group for the adolescent is the authority. That's a slow evolving process, but nonetheless, by the time a child reaches fourteen, we have pretty full ego development. As Joseph Campbell said, human beings are born fourteen years too soon. It takes fourteen years to have a fully developed ego, By the time we're fourteen, we have switched our parental authority to the authority of the peer group. And that runs from fourteen to twenty-one, roughly. Now, I must remind you that none of this is as pat as this lecture. It is not as simple as um, coming up with these sort of clear and distinct formula. It is much more complex than this, and it is Um, have many more factors than just the issues of of, uh, development. The predisposed pattern of personality, gender, when you were born, where you were born, your birth placement, all kinds of things affect development other than just parental authority. So I wouldn't make it this simple and it is very complex. But nonetheless, we can say in sort of general terms and gross anatomical terms that the anatomy of the psyche is that it develops in increments of seven around the issue of authority. And in that first period of authority, we're looking for something that will help us with our anxiety. And that is to have the answer. Answers to the questions, because what happens in our cognitive complexity, we begin to see that with most decisions, there are choices. That creates further anxiety. For you see, in the unconscious or in utero, there's no consciousness, therefore, no decision to be made, therefore, no anxiety with consciousness, as we develop our cognitive complexity, we begin to have to make decisions. And as I'm fond of saying, etymologically, decide comes from the same root as homicide and suicide. The decide is either saying no to me, suicide, or no to another, which is homicide. So, the greatest blessing and the greatest burden the human ego has is the gift and the curse of the ability to decide. And so, in the first seven years of life, we very rarely have to decide because we abdicate the decision-making to the authority. Now, those of you who are thinking about spiritual development or theological development, you can see that as in any issue around life, we can get stuck in any developmental stage and that we do not graduate from developmental stages, we accumulate them. So that uh, I may be 61 years old, but I have a 2 year old and a 14 year old and a 21 year old and a 35 year old in me uh, simultaneously. Now you could wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me how old I am, I would say 35 because that's how vital and attractive and full of life that I feel. Unless I had to go to the bathroom and then I would say I'm 61. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we therefore, at some point, psychological development and chronological development no longer parallel. That some people are out of phase in their psychological development from their chronological age so that at some level we begin to see that people get stuck in developmental stages or people become extremely precocious because of life experience. One of the things that there have been some longitudinal studies done on children who have near-death experience, and that they tend to mature early or to become uh, precocious in their psychological development and their, their uh, involvement in life. That a certain people are called in the second half of life prematurely, generally through some trauma or illness or some uh, difficulty in their life that has forced them to lose their innocence and to be called into adulthood prematurely. So we can't, uh, after, let's say, adolescence, or maybe even uh, after childhood, we can't look at a chronological development of age and psychological age as being uh, the same. So we have people in their 40s, developmentally, who are still in their adolescence. Now, where we get stuck is usually around trauma. Uh, We usually get stuck in our development around trauma. Where there is trauma, there tend to be uh, one of two responses or, interestingly enough, simultaneous opposite responses. When a child experiences trauma, they either regress or progress. That is to say, they become much younger and more dependent, or they grow up very fast. And in the mystery of psychoanalytic work, we see that for many, that is a simultaneous, so that in some ways they regress, in some ways they progress, so that they find their development split. And in many areas, they are very mature, very responsible, in other areas, they remain very neurotic independent. Now, that's a whole lecture and a very sophisticated psychoanalytic issue within itself. The only thing I'm trying to illustrate is age has very little to do with psychological development, education has very little to do with psychological development, intellectual ability has very little to do with psychological development. But psychological development has much more to do with the inherent genetic predisposition of the individual, and environmental influences. In other words, we find highly educated people who are not particularly conscious. We find very intelligent people who are not particularly conscious. We find uneducated people who exhibit a high degree of consciousness, and we find people who would not have particularly high IQs, but would be very conscious. That is to say, That is why that certain people who have responsible educations and professions may, in their own emotional or developmental life, be retarded. Now, uh, for those of you who occasionally wonder if I know where I am in a lecture, don't ever doubt. (laughs) I'm talking about why it is that some people who are in their 50s, with graduate degrees and highly responsible positions in the community still carry a third grade religious attitude now James Fowler in his study on spiritual development shows that many times that spiritual development people in spiritual development people get stuck right in the middle of this lecture on authority I'm raising the question of why does conservative religion, or even fundamentalism, appeal to so many people? It's because, in the earliest development, what are the rules for making it? It ameliorates, it assuages, and it soothes anxiety to have structure, to have rules, to have clear authority. There's the old joke in the Episcopal Church that we uh, put on our cars, honk if you love ambiguity. <laughs> Nobody honks.
1: <laughs>
0: the reason we don't like ambiguity is because it creates anxiety. And ambiguity is a relate, uh, uh, leads to ambivalence. There are two valences and I am ambivalent. I could go with either of the valences. And so ambivalence creates anxiety because we have to decide. And where there's decide, there's homicide and suicide. And I have to decide for me against you or for you against me. And so I would rather advocate that responsibility to some external authority or set of doctrine or dogma or codes in order that I don't have to take authority for my own existence. And the appeal of systems that promote and teach autonomy are very few. It's very difficult to find a system that promotes or models autonomy. Most systems promote dependence whether it's a church, government, or education systems, they tend to promote dependency. In spite of what we find in the academy about academic freedom, the minute somebody speaks freely, uh, people censor her or him. We do still like conformity, because where there is conformity and adaptation, there appears to be less anxiety. Because we all agree. Therefore, we know what the truth is. Therefore, we know in every situation what to decide, and where there is such certainty, it helps me with the attitude of anxiety. Now, there are some critiques of that, of course, because we're missing things like meaning and authenticity, which creates a different kind of anxiety. And that is, is this all there is? There's something fundamentally wrong and missing here. I have lived life, but I have not lived my life. That is the well-known and infamous midlife crisis, or, as my colleague James Hollis calls it, the midlife transition. And that is, as I am fond of saying, that the man came into my office, and with his presenting statement, was, I feel as though I'm a character in a novel written by somebody else. And that the first half of life, therefore, is biography. It's written by the authority figures. It's written by the environment in that complex, mysterious uh, alloy that comes out of the mixture between heredity and environment. It's biographical. It happens to us. It is our fate. Second half of life, and that's not a chronological age, it can begin at 6 or 16. It can begin over and over again. Some of the incumbent, subtle, perhaps unconscious wisdom of the idea of metanoia in Christian theology, which has to do with changing your mind, has to do with this midlife issue of, am I going to live my life authentically, or am I going to continue to live it safely, under the umbrella of a structure that guarantees no anxiety and a reward at the end. A midlife transition then uh, is about will I pick up the pen and write this myself from here? Will I become my own authority? Will I write autobiography? Or will I continue in my grave having said I yielded my life to external authority? Now, in the voice of pietism, I would agree that it would be nice if each of us could turn our life over to God, make God our only authority, and that the only authority to which I appeal is God. That person would be free, because there would be no other authorities telling you what it is God wants you to do. But even that, it seems to me, uh, has incumbent dangers, because then uh, we begin to listen with our uh, regressive ear about what it is others think it is that God wants for me. So, I think that for analytical psychology, and I believe, after having perused Christian theology and the Christian scriptures for all of my adult life, I believe what Christianity wants from us, as well as analytical psychology, Is for us to become our own authorities. First seven years of life, parental authority. The second seven years of life is changing the authority to the peers. From 14 to 21, the peer group. From 21 to 35, which is midlife, slowly, there's something in us that is urging us on to become our own authorities and pushing against the ceiling of the external authorities that have been created in our lives. This, ladies and gentlemen, is known as psychological conflict. The conflict between that which I feel called to be versus that which I'm experiencing myself to be. And that gap, it seems to me, is what we're looking to clothes, through consciousness. Not just being awake, but through consciousness. And that is knowing ourselves. Knowing where we came from. Knowing who we are. Knowing that subtle, sneaky, but important reason why we were born a human being and not a chair. That's from a play titled A Thousand Clowns. So authority comes into play because of anxiety. Anxiety is a fear of non-being. It's a fear of the unknown. And from the moment that we become conscious, there is this fear that this consciousness will disappear. That we won't be that our being is dependent upon this consciousness. And we become aware at some point that there is a time that will come that we will not be in the form that we've known ourselves to be in a time and space. It's called biological death. And as that great Christian orator, Carlisle Marney said, death is the canker in the bowel of humanity. Or as Ernst Becker in his 1973 Pulitzer Prize winning book, Denial of Death, says, that the greatest issue for the human being is her own death. Now we were warned in the book of Genesis that if we are going to become conscious, we had to have the pain of childbirth, labor by the sweat of our brow, and die. And, the rest of human history is written around creating illusions that will ameliorate our anxiety, soothe this fear of the unknown, and create structures that will uh, somehow soothe this anxiety or threat of non-being, death. So, there is this sort of illusion that goes on in Christianity and religion, that if we figure out what the rules are and follow them, then we don't have to die. Now the wages of sin is death, says St. Paul. Now if he's talking about biological death, and it's possible to overcome biological death by not being a sinner, then there's not been one successful human being that's ever lived even the founder of our faith. That this illusion that we don't have to die, that we find consistently on the celebration of Easter, where everybody comes out, and on Good Friday we have a paltry few who come to celebrate the death. And the thing the ego fears the most is this unknown. And death is the greatest unknown. And so, whatever we can do uh, to create structure or illusion that will ameliorate this anxiety about death, we will do. And, I think it's important to live as abundantly as we possibly can. Abundant life seems to me to be one of the goals of conscious living, to live fully, to live abundantly, to live meaningfully, to live fully, to live authentically. But, you know, there's this whole marketing around the idea that we can postpone death inevitably if we eat right and exercise. And I, I do both of those, occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the idea, the very idea that, that we would create an illusion that we don't have to die, would be sort of the darkest, manipulative uh, part of a an authoritarian structure. Now, the only way to prepare for biological death is to live abundantly. A synonym for that would be to live authentically. And the conflict in human consciousness is between the external authority that has set the rules for making it, which means survival, versus this instinctual, or as the Jungians would say, archetypal urge for authenticity, for me to live my life fully. In a speech that Jung made to a group of pastoral counselors in London, uh, the title of the paper was Psychotherapist or Clergy. In that paper he was talking about where he thinks that that Christianity has missed on its Christology or its understanding of Christ. And he wrote in one of his most famous or infamous paragraphs that it is a very difficult thing for one to model one's life on the life of Christ. Very difficult. But it is increasingly more difficult for one to live one's own life as truly as Christ lived his. So in other words, the switch in Christology is rather than for me asking what would Christ do or for me to living my life Christ-like, that I am to live my pitmanhood as authentically as Jesus lived his Jesushood. And if anybody ever did that, they would be experienced by the community as divine or transcendent, and so those people in the history of human development who have lived their lives authentically have been described by those around them as reflecting something of the transcendent, or the divine, or the holy, or the powerful, or try to make authority out of. Now, this kind of a parenthetical here that may sound like a political statement and doesn't intend to be, though it is a result of it. And that is that in our culture, there are people who are endowed with authority. And that is, they're given to them by the Creator. In some mysterious way, there's power, authority in certain individuals. That's given in their makeup and then there are people who acquire authority. The people who acquire authority are cunning people who understand how the systems work and are able to adapt and conform to the system in order to acquire power. And that comes basically out of a position of empathy. Power people don't seek powerful positions. They don't need them. I used to say when I was a parish priest, anybody who wants to be on the vestry cannot be. I want the people who don't want to be on the vestry. I want the people who don't need the power. Now, if I could ever vote for anybody for a political office, I would like to vote for somebody who doesn't want it. Uh, so the idea of becoming one's own authority is about living abundantly and a living authentically. And we create sort of these illusions around us that ameliorate the anxiety of the ego, like we don't have to die, which is, I think, the darkest side of any religious tradition. The idea that um, that uh, if I could stay young, this fountain of youth idea, another illusion that we build, then I won't be as anxious about the ultimate unknown or the ultimate mystery or the ultimate threat of non-being. The illusion that if I could find a perfect person out there who would uh, authenticate me or approve of me then my anxiety would disappear. Unfortunately the only candidates we have for significant others are other human beings who are anxious, ambivalent. (laughs) amphibious, and ambiguous. And they're as anxious as we looking for authorities who will make their life uh, complete. So there's the illusion of the magic other. We build these illusions to do away with the anxiety. Fountain of youth, magic other. Uh, The idea that there's a perfect place to live, The, the illusions that we create sometimes keep keep us from the abundance or the authenticity we seek because we're still looking outside ourselves for somebody who's going to make us complete or make us feel okay or approve of us. The midlife issue, once again, it's not a chronological age; it can happen at any time, and it's a repeating a repetition experience in life and that is that midlife happens to us many times that is when we decide or find that the life we've been living thus far is not authentic and we repent which means go a different direction and we move toward authenticity or we move toward becoming our own authority that's always a conversion experience, that's a metanoia that happens over and over and over again so midlife is not one event Now there may be one event that becomes a sort of Polaroid picture you put in your back pocket to show your friends about what it looked like when it happened. But that's not the event. There were things going on a decade before and a decade after that Polaroid picture of that one event. It becomes symbolic. It becomes indicative. It becomes a part of one's own sacred story. So there are events that we would point to as seminal in our development and yet we know that it's a process and it's not linear. There is progress, regress. Movement forward, movement backward in the human journey. Nothing about our development is linear. Even within a week, maybe within a day, and I suspect within an hour, we've had moments of great clarity and authenticity and regress back to a two-year-old crying out for somebody to please come take care of me. Who among us doesn't know the experience of elixir of autonomy that comes where you feel as though I am for the first time being that which I was created to be. and all seems well and within the day regress back the feeling as though I have no control, I have no clue as to who I am or what this life is about. That's the human experience. We hope that we're moving at least in a spiral if not in a straight line. We hope that we're not just going around and round in a circle. Now, the implications therefore for, for us is that our family systems, our religious systems, our educational systems, and governmental systems, which are the authorities for us, do not model nor do they promote autonomy or one becoming one's own authority. Now, as um, as much as I value parenting, and as hard as I worked at it, as much as I studied and read about parenting, I'm convinced, both in conversations with my the men who are my sons, and my own observation and self-reflection, I, I continue to give them mixed messages. Even as much as I wanted them to become authentically that which they were created to be, as much as I wanted them to make their own decisions, become their own authorities, I'm sure I gave them mixed messages. And because the last thing I wanted them to do was to grow up and leave. As I'm fond of saying, the only sadder story than them leaving us was if they didn't. Now That's a sad story. But nonetheless, I feel, shall we say, ambivalent. Because the greatest meaning i found in my life was coming home at 6 o'clock in the afternoon and then coming from two directions and jumping up and, and valuing me the way they do. You know that bumper sticker, I want to be the kind of man my dog thinks I am. Well, I want I to be the kind of man that those 5-year-old and 2-year-old boys thought I was. So even as the best parenting, we get mixed messages about independence and about being, modeling that. And I hope I've modeled independence. I hope I've modeled all that. But nonetheless, family systems don't tend to promote that, even the best one. For sure, it doesn't seem to me that the religious systems do that. Education systems, there's nothing more dependent than trying to get through an educational system and then get a degree. Talk about adaptation and conformity. And so it is with the government. The government wants conformity. You know? I'll show you how autonomous I am. You know, when you get your uh, uh, inspection sticker and then you get your registration sticker and it says place six inches above,
1: <laughs>
0: I do seven. <laughs> I mean, everywhere you look, there's a demand that we do it exactly right, their way. How much autonomy do we lose in being a part of the collective? Alright, we're, we're moving rapidly to the conclusion of this lecture, so let me give the other side of this very quickly. We need structure. We need rules. We need stop signs because this is the way we survive. We would not survive as a culture or as an organism or as a phylum if we didn't have rules, if we didn't have codes, we didn't have stop signs, If we didn't have collective assumptions about normative behavior, we must have them. Don't misunderstand me. And yet, the ultimate authority for who I am rests within me, not there. I want stop signs. My my, my, uh, firstborn had uh, acute appendicitis. And so we had to take him rapidly to St. Louis Hospital, and so I ran every stop sign between my house and the hospital. Because there was a higher authority there, you see. And I'm a pretty conservative driver. My point is that stop signs are important, but there are times when you know, with your own autonomy and your own sense of authority, that I have to run this sign right now. That's why Jesus said in the Gospel of St. Thomas, seeing men who were plucking grain on the Sabbath, which was against the law. You don't work on Sunday. He said to them, Man, if thou knowest what thou do, thou art blessed. If thou knowest not, thou art accursed. In other words, there's a difference between being a fool for autonomy and just being a damn fool. Because the thing that systems fear most is anarchy. And every time they see autonomy, they fear anarchy. But my witness is authenticity does not equate with anarchy. Authenticity equates with health. And people who are authentic tend to make healthy decisions. They know when to conform and adapt, and they know when to run the stop sign. There's a kind of internal moral gyroscope for those who are living the authentic life and have become their own authority. People who are truly autonomous, who have become their own authorities, promote culture and society rather than disintegrate or destroy it. The healthiest people are the ones who are autonomous. And so, you know, what the systems fear is that they will not perpetuate if people became autonomous. And so there's this implicit, sort of unconscious, part of every authoritarian system to keep people dependent because if people became independent the system would disappear. As I've often said, if the gospel is ever ever preached, truly preached, the churches would be empty. Number one, it would be so offensive that people would leave, but also, if everybody got a whiff of it, they wouldn't need the church. Now that's hyperbolic and that's the sort of hyperbolic statement that provokes, but I think there's a sort of a germ of truth to be learned in the fact that I believe that Christianity is about promoting independence, promoting autonomy, honoring authenticity, because that's the nature of the Christ. Autonomy, authenticity. He was his own authority, and he conformed and adapted when necessary, and yet when that point came, where the stop sign needed to be run, he ran it. Now, in conclusion, let me remind you that if we're going to be very good analytical psychologists, we must remind ourselves that the real authorities are not outside us, or inside us. The classic example I give is of the analysand of mine who hated being an attorney. He never liked the practice of law, even in the first year of law school, but his father and grandfather were both attorneys, and there was a place waiting for him in the family firm. And so he conformed and adapted, and he was depressed because there was that something in him that wanted him to be who he was, and who he was experiencing himself to be did not scratch that itch. Not an unusual story. And so the question, of course, what keeps you or prevents you from doing what you want to do, which he wanted to teach prep school and coach. He loved kids and he loved athletics and he loved history and he wanted to teach history at a prep school and coach lacrosse or soccer. I said, what what prevents you from doing that? And he said, well, it would kill my father and my wife would die because we're so dependent on the style of life and a certain kind of income. And so over the course of the treatment, he began to decide he must do that. He went to his father and announced to his father he's leaving the law firm and his father said, I wish I'd have done that when I was your age. <laughs> and I stayed because my father thought I should and if I've ever given you any implication, I think you should stay. Uh, you've misunderstood me. I'm so proud and pleased. He went to his wife and said, I decided to leave the law firm and apply for a job at a prep school and she said, anything that will make you happy will make me happy. So who were the authorities? Where were the authorities? The illusions he had created to create a structure to ameliorate the anxiety he had. That the true authorities that really bug us, the true authorities that really determine us, are no longer out there. Why is it that after my mother had been dead 10 years I was still talking to my analyst about her? It was not about her. It was about the portable mother and voice that I carried around that didn't just come from that poor, wonderful woman who died. It came from the church and from the culture. Overhearing conversations, looking at TV shows, reading periodicals. I had developed, we do develop within us, these complexes, parental complexes that we serve our entire life. Long after our parents had died. Long after we no longer believed in the authority of the clergyman long after we decided to take responsibility for our own lives, there's that haunting voice that's portable within us, so it doesn't make any difference where we live, it doesn't make any difference how much money we make, it doesn't make any difference the partners to whom we've attached ourselves, we still have these voices in us that tell us conform and adapt, that were put on us at the most primitive age, and they continue to determine our attitudes and behaviors. Those are the insipid, implicit authorities that we serve. And that's where the inner work is about. That's what the real difficult inner work is about. It's not about rebelling. It's not about quitting going to church. It's not about refusing to vote. It's not about withholding income taxes. It's about re- visioning the world. It's about rewriting these tapes. It's about coming to another consciousness that is yours, rather than one that you've inherited. And those are the most difficult. So I suspect that the whole history of human development can be written around the problem of authority and the biggest problem, the ultimate problem, is that conflict in us between the parental authorities that we carry around in our head, and the longing of the authority that was given to us at our beginning, and that is to become our authentic and true selves There's where the conflict is. It's interior. It's not to be played out with external structures. That's just another illusion. If we got rid of the authoritarian structures externally, we would still be, Serving the internal authority in our own psyche. Now surely, after this hour's lecture, something has stimulated you, confused you, provoked you, irritated you, soothed you, or confused you. Now, which of those would you like to respond to? Yes, David. Sometimes that's the way we make sense of things is talk about them. Uh-huh. Well, the problem we have when we begin to think about um, the question is, if one attaches to the authority of God, does it make any difference in the development in the seven-year increments uh, for the individual? It depends on the God image that we choose. And interestingly enough, um, the God images that we choose are generally just projections of our parental complex. So that there's a negative father God, there's a negative mother God, as well as a nurturing father God and a nurturing mother God. But they're generally projections of our own internal processes. Paul Tillich said that, that that God is really the ground of being, not a parental. You know that the parental metaphor is a regressive or, res, uh, or an immature metaphor for God. That that we in our ages are not looking for a parent; we're looking for the ground of being, or meaning, or experience of validation, those kinds of things. Uh, unfortunately, our God images many times are projections of the parental complexes. Uh, Tillich further says that the God which is the ground of being is the God who appears when all of the other gods disappear in the anxiety of doubt. So that there is a God image that I think comes to us that is about authenticity, but I think that's the second half of life. I think that's what the struggle is, to find that imago dei that that promotes health and transformation rather than the one that keeps us infantilized. Somebody else? Yes, please. Have you recorded me on that computer there in front of you? How how, how How did I look? Thank you. <laughs> I said what? Yes, yes.
1: be not how Gradual process.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Well, we would we would radically disagree. Yeah, it's not a tabularizer number one. It's fully programmed with all kinds of uh, information predisposition, In terms of personality type gender, you know, a lot of, lot of things are in there when it's born. Of course, absolutely. And that I would agree that, that it is an evolutionary process. But also, we, you know, when you are unplugged from symbiosis and, and come into independence that radically, you know, most, most of us at least poetically say that the longest journey is the birth canal because we, we move most dramatically and radically from dependence to independence. Now, in fact, we are surrounded by um, a slow process of evolving out of that. You know, the whole idea of swaddling clothes, of course, is to reenact the wound, the papoose, the idea of a tight environment. It's called psychologically container. And that's what we do in psychology is develop a container for the person who comes to see us to for containment for structure. Different kind of structure, but nonetheless, it, it helps in, in the development. And so, yes, I would agree that it's a slow process. And, and immediately, the child is is sucking at the breast, which is another uh, symbiosis, as, as it were. So I agree with that. But sort of poetically, in order to dramatize how dramatically uh, shocking and difficult consciousness is, that that, and if you if you do infant observation particularly at birth they don't look like they've come into bliss here and and the the disintegration of the child or the infant when it can't feed its hunger can't uh, say, uh, satiate its pain that, that disintegration and panic on the child's face that it's it is a pretty dramatic transition but I, I would agree that it's a process and probably is not uh, as instantaneous as I would like to make it, in order to emphasize the dramatic shift between womb life and world life. Yeah. I, uh, poetically, I'll, I'll defend it. Yeah. Yes, please. Yep.
1: Mother's yeah. To self,
0: well, there's the a school. Yeah, you're, that's a great question. You ask it very well. The question is, what about having too much mother or not enough mother, and which seems to be, you know, um, most advantageous to balance and health or wellness? Well. Um, Bruno Bettelheim wrote a book which has a great title and is not a very good book. It's called A Good Enough Mother. (laughs) Object Relations has an idea of the three kinds of mothers that are are there for the child. There is the, the present mother who's present. That is, she's biologically present, but she's also emotionally available. In other words, she's in the room with the child. She's present physically, but also emotionally present. He's doing, stimulating, gratifying, taking care of the child, anticipating its needs, giving them an environment of safety and security and health. That's the present mother who's present. There's also the absent mother who's present, and that's generally the result of a present mother who was present, that is to say that she's in the other room, not available to the child, but the child's able to self-soothe. Or to, on the basis of the experience that the world's safe and things go, you're wanted, needed, and all that, that the child, at least for a while, is able to self-soothe. Because that absent mother is still present. Okay, the worst mother is the present mother who's absent, and that's the mother who's either emotionally unavailable, depressed, drunk—you uh, know, a thousand ways she's not available—and that's the worst. Now, so what we hope for is a good enough mother, and that is a mother who satisfies, gratifies, stimulates, and satisfies, but is absent enough to. Um, create a conflict, and the child must solve for itself. Now, the two, you know, sort of radically uh, opposing viewpoints that we've known have been the one is total presence of mother gratifying all needs, and the idea of letting the child cry to work out its own, learn to work out its own problems or frustrations. Um, you know, we, I think we seek some kind of balance. I think we seek sort of some common sense about the child probably needs to cry a bit, but if at some point we know that the crying becomes non-productive, where the child's not able to self-soothe, and you go in and sue. You know, give the child ten minutes, if they haven't self-soothed, you can go in and sue. Now the point of that is that, that we always look, I think, in parenting for not what's consistent, but what's appropriate. Because you know it's not always the same. I mean, sometimes I let them cry. Sometimes I change them. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't do. I'm not a pediatrician doing parenting. I'm an analytical psychologist who's thinking about what messages we give children by the way we behave with them. And if we behave appropriately, I think that works. So to behave consistently, I don't know what that prepares a child for. I, mean, I don't know. But life's consistent, it's unfair and by the way, you talk about one of the great illusions that we've created. to satiate anxiety is the, the illusion of fairness. You know, that, that is an absolute illusion. It's not archetypal, that is to say it doesn't appear in any literature anywhere. Fairness. It's just an illusion that we create because we can't stand the fact that the rain falls on the just and the unjust and life's inconsistent and life is full of what they call vicissitudes. So I've amplified your... Question with my own rant. Yes, please. Birthplace, uh, birth order. Uh huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think birth order is significant in development, and we've all seen it and know it sort of empirically. Uh, Every child has a different set of parents, born in the same family. First children have one set of parents. The second child has a different set of parents. They're older, they're wiser, they've had more experience. By the time the fifth child comes, they have surrogate parents and the older siblings. For better or for worse. So, you know, in birth order, it makes a huge difference in development. Okay, please. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I I have reflected and taught, lectured on sort of how we. choose our partners based on these imagos, these images of our parents. Harville Hendrickson made a million dollars on a book he wrote on imago therapy about how we, and he got it from Jung, the idea we project onto certain external people parental images. And then we are attracted to that so that we either marry our mother or our father, depending on the deprivation and development as to which we need the more, a mother or father. If I had a bad father experience, I marry somebody like my father. That kind of thing, and I think that holds a lot of truth. I'm very cautious now, at my age and my experience, of drawing a straight line between cause and effect on anything. It's so complicated. We can't. But it's one of the things that we would look at in sort of relational psychology about why we choose the people we choose. One of the things we do know about psychology, that, that 180 degrees is 360 degrees. A woman comes to me and says, I'm going to raise my daughter absolutely just the opposite way I was raised. Watch out. My parents were never there for me. They threw money at, and confused money and love. I'm going to be for my daughter. They were never at my birthday. I'm never going to miss a birthday. They you know, uh, were absent. I'm going to always be present. Well, w- w- which is the more neurotic? The one who has an absent parent or the one who has mother-mother. So, it's the same with you know, anorexia and obesity. I mean, you know, those are 180 degrees. They're 360 degrees. They're the same thing. So, this idea of, of uh, I'm going to marry somebody totally different. You know, watch out. You're going to find somebody very similar before you get through here. Anyway, I'm I'm also very cautious about cause and effect, but I like sort of ideas like that. I I like ideas. Those are ideas. They're not, you know, rules. Somebody else. We've got ten whole minutes. Yes, please. Well, the. The idea, of course, is that the four essences are earth, wind, fire, water. Okay, four elements. Element and essence are synonyms. So that there are four essences out of which we're trying to find the quintessential, which is the fifth essence or the quintessential, the fifth essential. And so where where I've used that before is to say that I think that that. The human being is the quintessential. That's that's the essence. Yeah, yeah. Now Jung's uh, reflections upon the cruciform, the cross, you know, was about the quaternity and about the connection of the transcendent or the celestial and the terrestrial, or the transcendent and the historical, and, and the beauty of the Quaternity, which is really an elementary uh, what, what uh, the Eastern holy people call the mandala. So that the, the cross is a, is a very elementary mandala and the mandala always constellates wholeness or wellness and that the essence of that is the self and that's what we, the quintessential is to become one's self And the self is that mysterious word or that that word that points to a mystery once again called the self, which is uh, paradoxical. It's all that I am, the essence of who I am. Yes. Right. That's correct. That's correct. That uh, Hermes, uh, who would be the messenger between the gods and the mortals, stands at the crossroads, and that's a, a beautiful way to talk about the hermeneutic. Hermes is, you know, hermeneutics is the translation of sacred story, or the translation of the divine drama, in a way that humans can hear it. So the process of hermeneutics is taking the symbolic story and trying to communicate it in a way that mortals can understand it. So, and one sense, Christ was Hermes. Christ is at the cross, the crossroads between the celestial and terrestrial, between the uh, the human and the divine. And the idea that the church, at least in our mythology, wants to make him fully God and fully human, creates a cross in that human-divine uh, axis or access. So, so I like all of that theologically, symbolically, and mythologically. I do not like it literally. It trivializes it when we literalize it. One more, and then we're going to go on our way of rejoicing. Yes? Now the question is, can we be a little more conscious or wise enough to uh, make better choices, uh, to anticipate, to muster all our resources for trying to discern this moment, what's the healthiest thing for me, amidst all the choices and complexities and voices. How can we do that? Well, I think that's what consciousness is about. And and, uh, as I'm fond of saying with decision-making, that every decision is both life-giving and death-dealing and I'd like to be as conscious as I can that out of this decision it will be creative. I'd like to make the decision that will be creative. It may require temporary destruction, or because almost all new consciousness comes as a result of a loss or a defeat. So I'd like to be able to be wise enough conscious enough to anticipate, make healthier choices. We can't change things we're not conscious of. So the answer to your question is like the little boy in New York, you know, who says, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. How do you get to making healthier choices? Consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. Now in defense of uh, all of us, uh, unfortunately I think most of our Change that comes through crisis, through loss, trauma, illness, difficulty, depression, whatever it is. I think we we generally don't change unless we have to. Hardly any of us volunteer for it. I think it happens to us, and we can respond to it or regress from it. But but I think most of us don't don't show up at the change shop every day to to uh, make our purchase. Change is difficult for the ego, very difficult for the ego, and the ego tends to put its allegiance with systems who say you don't have to change. And uh, I think that's exploitation. I think it's uh, you know, immoral, really, to, for institutions to promote membership on the basis of you don't have to think and you don't have to change. You know, i have often said, I'll conclude with this, that, that uh, the, the clinical definition of death is cessation of change. And if the human organism, if it doesn't change, you know, it dies. Things don't stay still. They're either changing and growing or they're dying. And so to stay alive, we have to change. And we have to change consciously to stay alive psychologically. We have to change our minds. We have to change our ideas and attitudes and behaviors. Uh, But there's something in us that doesn't want to change. Our fears change. And so we always want to lock things in. That's the wisdom of the story of the transfiguration where Peter said, let's build three booths here for you and Elijah and Moses to Christ. Let's stop here. Let's don't ever change. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And that's the diabolic, it says don't change. So I think diabolical systems are their natures in every system that's diabolical, it says don't change. And every high school annual in every graduating class throughout Christendom, some little girl has written to some little boy, I love you just the way you are, don't ever change. Well, well just imagine that. <laughs> So he shows up 50 years later at the class reunion, and he's never changed. <laughs> you, know, you know, what kind? Huh? Yeah, little angel. So, change is uh, the nature of the human organism, and it's the thing that the ego fears the most. So here's another conflict, is it not? We're urged toward it, and we resist it. That's sort of the conflict of the human journey. Okay, so, you, um, as I am fond of saying, I know a whole lot about very little. And I've given you everything I know. Well, except for a couple other things. And maybe maybe they'll have me back to talk about them. Thank you for coming.